0: Oh, well, welcome everyone to this episode of the AI Tech Sales Podcast. Uh, it is my great pleasure to welcome Godard Abel, uh, CEO of G Two and many-time entrepreneur on the podcast. Godard, welcome and thank you for joining.
1: Yeah, great to be here with
0: you, Rohan. Fantastic. Well, um, for the benefit of the audience, if you could talk a little bit about your background, the, the, the companies you've started, how you became an entrepreneur, how you ended up in, uh, ended up founding G Two.
1: Yeah, no, I've been an entrepreneur building companies ever since two thousand. And it probably goes back to my days at Stanford Business School at the end of the 90s, which was, you know, tremendous dot-com entrepreneurship boom. And like a lot of my classmates started building then. My first company was Big Machines, which eventually turned into a SaaS cloud CPQ. And that was acquired by Oracle, but it was kind of an arduous 12, 13-year journey to get there. And after that, you know, we started G2. And uh, after that, shortly after that, my first company was also bought by Oracle. And uh, so then we thought there was a gap in the Salesforce ecosystem, so we built Steelbrick which was a CPQ specifically built for Salesforce. And we were actually quickly acquired. You know, about two years in our journey, we were acquired by Salesforce. I spent you know, about a year and a half working there before I came back to G2.
0: So interesting. Tell me a little bit about what CPQ was like in the 2000s. I mean, you know, CRM was barely a concept in, in at the time, or it was not a very well-understood concept. Um, what was it like and how has it evolved since then?
1: Yeah, and I think in the 2000s, it wasn't even called CPQ. You know, I think originally we called it sales configuration software, 8%. and then eventually, I think by about 2010, it turned into CPQ. So, it turned into a good market. But I think on that one, we kind of learned the hard way. Like we were way ahead of the curve for cloud because we launched a cloud app in 2000, and then wow. we also, and at the beginning, honestly, like I was young. I think I was like 28, you know, fresh out of business school. Like I didn't really know what I was doing. But in hindsight, we were way ahead of the market, right? Which made it a long, long arduous journey. How do you keep motivated, I guess, when you're ahead of the market, when you feel like you've seen something the
0: market hasn't, but you have no validation from the market yet or limited validation? So-
1: and it, it was hard, you know, because for a few years, I felt like I was failing. But I think at the end of the day, what kept me going was my co-founders. You know, my co-founder, Chris, he was my best friend from MIT. And then we recruited a few more friends from MIT. So one, I think we didn't want to let each other down. And then two, it was a validation from our early customers and, uh, you know, I think three years in, we were almost dead and we only had about a dozen customers, but those dozen manufacturers that adopted early, they were getting a lot of value and they were showing, you know, 80% more efficiency oftentimes with online quoting and ordering, you know, so that were, that's kind of what allowed us and actually the customers became our friends. So it was a combination of the early customers having success and believing and working with us and our team. You know, I think that's what allowed us to stay resilient and, and not quit when, you know, probably a lot of times we were we were wondering why why we kept going. Part of a big part of entrepreneurship is just stick, staying the course, right, for as long as you can.
0: Obviously, not being pig-headed and not responding to market feedback, but staying the course is a big part of it. Um, uh, very interesting. Um, I'd love to hear your thesis for G two, and in twenty twelve in particular, what what made you feel like there was this gap in the market for trusted, verified software feedback that vendors, that vendor buyers or procurement people, whatever, could use.
1: Yeah, I think we saw the gap, a lot of it based on our own experience building big machines. And honestly, we thought it was just way too hard to sell and buy enterprise software. In a specific example, you know, we also got the feedback from our customers. And eventually we did sign up a lot of big manufacturers that made big machines, You know, yeah. like G-Energy and Rolls-Royce, they made these huge steam turbines. But I think we didn't sign up some of them till like 2009, mm. nine years after we started. And then also it was interesting, we'd start working with them and they'd say, oh, wow, We wish we'd known you existed two years ago. You know, we've been trying to build these apps in-house and we didn't know a specialist vendor like you existed. So I think we saw there was like a big discovery problem Mm -hmm. um, for software buyers. And I think the other motivation was honestly, we were frustrated by the status quo, which tended to be the analysts like Gartner and Forrester. and, And obviously many of the analysts are good people, but we were really frustrated by their model. And mm-hmm. some ways, I looked at it like a legacy publishing model. It reminded me of like Encyclopaedia Britannica, you know, when I was going to school in the '80s, where yep. that was the best you had, right? It was before the internet, before Wikipedia, and it was kind of like a very good book, you know, published every two years. And that's what we kind of thought the Gardner Quadrant was in a way, you know, where it's one analyst's opinion, but they only write every two years, they only cover so many categories, and then they also have all these exclusion criteria, you know, right. where like until you're doing 20 million and like 80% of your business has to be large enterprises, and it made sense for traditional Gartner. I mean, they're serving Fortune 500 CIOs. Who only want to buy really proven enterprise solutions, but there's so much innovation. And so the same year we started G2, that's when Mark Andreessen said software's eating the world. And we very much believe that. And I think what Mark meant was, hey, there's going to be purpose-built software apps, built everything. to solve and automate you know every part of every business and every vertical. Yep. And so we also thought, wow, if software's going to need the world. We need a buffet. And we thought that buffet also needs reviews just like Yelp has. Let's ask the real users, the consumers of software, what they think. And somewhat surprisingly, when we started in 2012, none of that existed for the enterprise software industry. So it was just one of these ideas that to us, frankly, seemed fairly obvious. Because it was just bringing what we took for granted as consumers. And we're shopping on Amazon, or even Glassdoor was doing employee sentiment. And we're like, hey, why doesn't this exist for customer sentiment for software? And that's why we decided to build it.
0: Do you think it was because in 2012 was when there was really this explosion of everyone buying software like across industries or around that time was when that really started taking off?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's certainly, that's part of the trend we're betting on. You know, we'd already seen that in the Salesforce ecosystem. Right. And I remember even when Salesforce first started in 2000, and people might not remember this, but at the beginning, Salesforce actually focused on SMBs. And we were actually a customer of theirs, you know, big machines in 2000. We were an internet startup. And frankly, we couldn't afford Siebel. And right. I think the original premise even of Salesforce was that The VPS sales could buy it on his credit card. And obviously that's changed over the years. But uh, but that was the whole idea consumerization of software, you know, that now is the line of business person, they could buy their own apps, right? In the traditional enterprise process of going through the CIO, right, having kind of a structure two-year valuation, and the CIO had to approve and you know, then drive all software projects across company. Like I think we did think that model was ending. And probably the other trend around 2012 was also the emergence of the mobile internet. You right. know, we also saw these mobile app stores, Apple, Android, and so we just thought, wow, like enterprise software needs an online software marketplace based on trusted reviews, and and so those were those were all the trends we were we were betting on. Very interesting.
0: Can you talk a little bit about you know you were talking with Gartner and some of these other forest, et etc. These quadrants that have been in, been in existence for two decades or longer. I don't know how long. Uh, one actually four decades. Four decades.
1: Yes. That's Cause correct. I did one interesting side note. I went to meet Gideon Gartner when I was starting G2. He's a fellow MIT alum. And I think he graduated all the way back in the 1950s from MIT. Wow. And then he started Gartner, I think like right around 1980 Interesting. started doing quadrants then. And, and I, when I talked to him, I'm like in the eighties, that's obviously all you could do, right? There was no internet. Correct. There was very little information about technology period. Right. And he was actually, his backstory was, he was actually a equity analyst covering IBM and investment bank
0: that makes so much sense to then go
1: and there was literally no technology research for buyers but back then in the late 70s when he started the IBM mainframe cycle drove all innovation and so that's why somehow he got the idea is like oh there's a lot of people that aren't you know that aren't in the world of buying equities that would be interested in this kind of technology research so he, he had that vision way back then and came up with the quadrant and and like I said in the 80s it was very cutting edge and the best way you could do it but it was in the 80s right and that was kind of and right. we're like 2012 and we're still relying on paper published books? Like that, right. that seemed Instead absurd.
0: Manually written up by equity or by analysts that can only cover so many so many pieces of software. So I have two questions here, right? So one is, uh, one of the challenges I would presume with Gartner is that it, the coverage is not as wide, right? That's one of the big reasons you talked about in terms of how G2 can cover a much broader range of software. The other is this um, idea that, is it as trustworthy, right? Like there is this feeling of, I've heard from a lot of founders that Gartner, except for effectively pay to play, right? You only mm-hmm. get on the quadrant if you buy one of their software, they won't make it as explicit, but that's one of the things that is implicitly what ends, what ends up happening, or that, at least that's the perception I've heard from a lot of founders. How much of the the pay to play and how much of the coverage is what drives you think G2's competitive edge or other things as well?
1: Yeah, and I think we kind of wanted to address both. You know, so yeah. one of the things on G2, when you're an entrepreneur, you can list your app for free and you can also be number one for free. Like an example, great example of that over the years was Slack. Yeah. You know, and it was somewhat frustrating to ask because Slack, and no surprise, right? Like people love Slack. We use it at G2, right? Users just love it. So they always had thousands of happy reviews. And then, and they had all these leader badges on G2 for free. And obviously, then we tried to upsell them our marketing solutions. But frankly, for many years, we never could because we're like, hey, we're growing just fine. And we love G2. We love being number one, but we have plenty of growth, right? We don't need your marketing solutions. So, yeah. So I think we tried to address that because we want entrepreneurs to get validation for free based on customer voice. And so we'll always keep that free. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, yeah, we definitely think, you know, the pay to play and, but I think probably even more important is the real-time data aspect, you know, and especially now with AI, because we also just thought, huh, lagging information, you know, because if an analyst does research and they gather information and I've fed that, like in my big machines days, we would feed the analyst to the spreadsheets they would use, you know, with all the data on our company, number of customers, et cetera. But then they wouldn't publish that, oftentimes for a year, you know, so the day they published it was already a year old and then they wouldn't update it for two years. And you're right, coverage, I think even today Gardner might have about 300 Magic Quadrants. You know, on G2, we have 2300 categories of software and it's all real time, you know? And I think now, and that's probably to me the most exciting advantage, it's real time data on software. And obviously, as you know, Data is also the foundation for AI. And so, because I think the reality in software now with cloud software is moving so fast mm-hmm. that, you know, I think our G2 grids now, those are our version of the quadrant. That's kind of the real-time view. But what we're hoping to do with AI, we can even predict, you know, like, because as a software buyer, you want to know, hey, who's going to be, you know, the best vendor in two years? Because I think there is so much innovation now and vendors are adopting AI, some are adopting it well, some aren't, you know, so if we can not only give you the view of the market today, but we can predict, here's what the software market's going to be in two years. I think that's even more exciting. So I think now, and I do think AI, maybe I've been waiting for it for a decade. And as you know, you've been working on AI research for a long time. And I remember even when I was at MIT in the early nineties, there was already an AI lab, right? right? I think it goes back to like the 1950s. So in that right. sense, yep. AI is not new, Yeah. but I think what, you know, chat GPT 3.5 showed all of us with generative AI. And now this massive computing power behind it, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden it had that wow effect where like, wow, I can ask chat GPT anything. And it gives me like a really thoughtful, incredible answer in real time. Like, that kind of all came together, right? But I do think now that that generative AI and that ability to have conversations with data, I do think is going to unlock a lot of things, including, you know, I think G2's disruption is going to be accelerated.
0: There's so much to unpack there. Um, I mean, in terms of the explosion in in the, the quality, I think, of language models was completely unprecedented when GPT came out, 3.5 came out a year ago, right? And, um, And so now, like the number of applications that are being built on top of it um, that combine not just sort of the the Internet at large, but proprietary data and building sort of really high quality models for specific use cases. Um, I want to dive into some of those AI applications you're talking about, but I had one question before that. When you started G2, was there ever a thought around making it industry specific? Um, you know, I think increasingly, and maybe this wasn't the case in 2012, but increasingly in the last few years there has been this push towards verticalization as horizontal software gets a lot more competitive. And, you know, if you, if you specialize in the vertical, you build a brand in that vertical, you build, uh, you can sort of increase your share of wallet in that vertical, et cetera. Was there ever that thought and it was sort of swatted down? i um, curious.
1: Yeah, no. And I think there is some degree of verticalization built into G2 today, Right. right. and for example, we started, you had to sign up for G2 with your LinkedIn profile to write a review, to make it trusted. That's still what most of our reviewers do. And that does tell us, for example, their industry vertical. Hmm. And let's say, and you're right, I think a lot of software is very crowded today. Let's take our CRM category, it has over 400 listings. But then, and there are vertical CRM solutions, one of the most famous being Viva, which was built for life science companies. And then you can also slice the G2 data and grids by vertical. You know, so we could show you, hey, based on reviewers, let's say only in life sciences, hmm. you would clearly see that Viva is winning. And uh, but I do think we can make that even more explicit. You know, we do publish these grid pages, and uh, you know, frankly, and we haven't done it yet, but we could easily publish a grid by vertical you know, once our categories get crowded. So you could see, because yeah, probably manufacturing right people are going to have different preferences in telco than in life sciences. So I do think, like I said, the good news, and I think that's a good. Think about being like a real-time data-driven platform like G2. Right? We have all that contextual data on industry, company size, region. So we can slice and dice our ratings you know, based on industry, company size, location, et cetera, and really however the buyer wants to. And I do think even AI, sorry to keep it goes back there, but it's a great way to do it right? because like our AI, Monty, you can also ask, will ask you, hey, what vertical are you in? You know, and then based on the data of reviews, recommendations in that vertical, it'll make very different recommendations based on the industry you're in. So I do think, yeah, AI is just another great way to unlock that. But the good news, like I said, we've already tagged our data by vertical. So yeah, we okay. can we can offer that slice. I wanna I want to dive
0: into AI and this is the AI Tech Sales podcast. Gordon, can you talk a little bit about uh, AI Monty as it is today and what you envision it being in maybe a year from now and two years from now?
1: Yeah. And my co-founders and I, when we saw ChatGPT you know, 3.5 last November, we got so excited we're like, there's gotta be an application here for G2. And so we did. Yeah, you know, I think earlier this year, I think in April, we launched our own AI Monty mm-hmm. and we did partner with OpenAI. So AI Monty is built on top of ChatGPT. Uh, but then we have also launched a plugin on you know, the OpenAI store. So then we inject our own data and uh, we train Monty for software buying use cases. And uh, and as you know, ChatGPT is trained on general internet data, right? And I think it's still a couple of years old, but then we inject our real-time data on software that only G2 has mm-hmm. and we train it. You know, we train different behaviors, because I certainly want Monty to be, it's almost like your best Accenture consultant, or maybe even your best partner analyst, right, but an AI bot. So we're continuously training AI Monty. And AI Monty is still, I think, in alpha or in beta. But I think it's it's pretty compelling, because I think the big unlock to me is no longer having to rely on our taxonomy of 2300 categories. Because the reality is the average software buyer, and I think we see the software buyer now as any of 1 billion knowledge workers, and I think one thing the pandemic accelerated, right? All knowledge workers, we're all in apps all day. Like right now you and I are on a Zoom, right? But right now I also have my Google Drive open, my Google Docs, right? But we're all working in online apps all day. And and we think it's critical for every knowledge worker to have the best stack, but, you know, but we think any knowledge worker now can be a software buyer. And, uh, but they won't know, like to give you know, a sales example, since we're on a sales podcast, you know, there's this amazing category now, con- conversational intelligence. And like you and I, Rohan, being in software, we know what that is, right? That's originally sales recording, AI tools like Gong and Chorus, you know, now yeah. there's hundreds of them just in conversational intelligence, yep. but like the average VBS sales, they're not going to go to the internet, and be like, I need some conversational intelligence software. And very few of you, maybe today, some of them have heard of it, but they're going to be like, Hey, how do I improve my sales rep productivity? Mm-hmm. How can I better coach my reps? How can I make sure we're doing good meeting follow-ups? And, you know, you can, and the beauty with an AI conversational interface, you can just ask those questions. You just ask, you can share with Monty your business problems, and then Monty will then make nuanced recommendations. And Monty will ask you additional questions such as, you know, what industry are you in? How big is the sales team you're running? And, you know, based on all of that, it can then, you know, recommend to that VPS sales, hey, you know, here's some apps like Gong, like Chorus, and or check out our grid for the conversational intelligence category. And so it then pulls them into and pulls out the right information, the right data, mm-hmm. you know, versus having to navigate by... Yeah this taxonomy that that I think is not intuitive to most business people.
0: Right. And one thing that I'm curious about is how do you see this, the idea of these two, what, 2,300 grids evolving into the future? Because naturally, a lot of software is on a spectrum. Um, you know, even on G2, you can be in multiple categories and yes. you can have the vertical and the horizontal layer, etc. And you could easily have software from two very different categories effectively be in competition uh, when, a vendor is making, or when a buyer is making a decision want to buy. Do you feel like Monty is one step in the direction of allowing buyers to either choose the categorical way to buy software or sort of a free-form way, whatever they prefer.
1: Yeah, I do see AI and Monty being that free-form. And I do think it's going to be the preferred path Yeah, because it is more like that conversation with a consulting expert you know, or even a peer where I think we all prefer the Socratic method of learning. I think it goes all the way back to the Greeks, right? But that's question and answer. Yep. And I do think that's what we all saw with ChatGPT, right? It's a Q&A interface. Right. Yep. And as humans, that's our natural way to converse like you and I are doing right now. Whereas I think traditional enterprise software, not just P2, right? It's always based on like structured taxonomy search or even worse forms with required fields yep. and rigid workflows, right? But it's anything unlike a fluid conversation that, you know, as humans, we tend to love to have. And the beauty of the AI, I think you can then pull in, you know, the structured data you need or even better also fill in, you know, the structured data in the forms you need for your enterprise workflows. But I think the future will be conversations, right? Also conversations with AI. And I do think that's going to be also the future of software buying on G2 is that you have a conversation about your business problems, your needs, and then G2, you know, can recommend based on that conversation, uh, recommend potential solutions to make your business better. And yeah. so I do think, again, yeah, eventually maybe we don't even need a text on me. You know, it's probably more world of use cases then. Because I think Rohan, you rightfully said, oftentimes tools from different categories might compete, you know, because, and especially today, like conversational intelligence is a good one to talk about, right? At the beginning, I remember, you know, Gong probably launched like 2016, 17, you know, and then now there's many more options, but, you know, back then it was kind of a hard problem to solve. But now I think many software suites, you know, including Salesforce, including so many, they all have some form of their own conversational intelligence.
0: Correct. So, or Zoom
1: now offers it, right? So if today, if you want to, kind of an AI-driven meeting note-taking app, let's say, you know, meeting analytics app, like there's a lot of options out there in many different categories. And I do think that's the power of AI, probably just putting your use case, like, hey, I want to take better sales meeting notes. You know, I want to automate sales follow-ups. Auntie could tap into and find, you know, the 100 best apps across categories and then narrow it down for you. Yeah, you know, by asking more questions.
0: This is, this is broader question though, right? Around like taxonomy or categorization, um, categorical data versus freeform data. I think of even like the CRM. There's probably always going to be some categorical data in the CRM, but sure. think about like a lot of you know fill in these medic fields, blah blah blah. Um, how do you see that evolving in this um, in this era of GPT as people get more comfortable with free form question answering as a way to, to be informed or make a decision? Do you feel like a lot of what was historically categorical data like the CRM, etc., um, that will get slimmed down? Do you, see that, do you feel like there's always going to be a space for categorical data so people can wrap their heads around a new
1: space? Yeah, I think the categorical data structure will always be there. Also, like in sales, for example, it's to drive your forecast. So there's going to be certain structured data fields you want mm-hmm. to help you better manage your opportunities, manage your forecast, manage your pipeline. I think that'll still be there, but I think my hope and belief is the AI can capture it for you from the conversation. You know what I mean? So I, I do like this AI assistant for sales where, and I think Gong, Zoom, they're all headed in this direction, right? It's just listening to your call with the customer and then can deduce you know, what all those structured data fields in your CRM should be. Mm-hmm. And frankly, probably do it better than the human, right? And now the human no longer... And the human sales rep, they're just sending their emails, doing their Zooms, AI is listening and reading the presentations, the proposals, seeing how the customer is engaging digitally and providing all the structured categorized data that you know sales management still needs to drive the forecast. But I do think AI, yeah. And I think that'll be interesting too, because sales systems will probably be totally reimagined, right? Because maybe, and today it's like, hey, is HubSpot more intuitive than Salesforce, right? And a lot of that depends on how you configure it, but maybe the sales rep Maybe that's not even visible to them anymore, right? The CRM is not visible to the sales rep because it's just the AI is capturing that behind the scenes. And frankly, all the sales leaders now, I think, you know, HubSpot, they're working on their AI, Salesforce working on their Einstein, right? So I think everyone's working towards that. And it'll be interesting to see, yeah, like how long does it take to get to that reality, you know, of no longer structured forms, no longer feeding kind of categorical data and having the AI just capture it and feed all that behind the scenes.
0: Yeah. I think um, this is a conversation I've had with, we've had it internally, it's very relevant to what we do at Copilot and you know, with other CEOs too. I feel like increasingly there is, the CRM is really just the end that very little direct interaction happens with. It's still like the database of record for everything customer related, but um, in terms of the action interactions, already you have most of the reporting happening in many companies in like Power BI or whatever reporting tools and um, so, and you have a lot of forecasting happening in Clary, blah, blah, blah. And so I think we're, with AI, we're moving to in a direction where the actual interaction with the CRM might be minimal. Of course, that that interaction layer may also be built by Salesforce or HubSpot, but it's not actually the CRM that people interact with. It's a, it's, a, it's an interesting model that I think we're moving towards. Um, I want to ask you about uh, Monty and the data that feeds it. So I'm guessing a big part of it is reviews, right? So you're trying to take the trained on the internet version of ChatGPT or GPT three point five and make it a Trustworthy um, consultant when you're buying software. So, you take reviews. What else have you tried to do, or what else is in the pipeline in terms of making it or fine tuning it to be that trustworthy consultant?
1: Yeah. And I think reviews is certainly one big big data set. And I guess an ideal data set for AI because it's all unstructured data, right? It's all human words and text. Exactly. We can make sense of that. But we do also, we can also use the structured data. You know, those are things more like you mentioned earlier, like what industry are you in? You know, what industries are the reviewers in? what's the company size, what's the location. So there are, I think, still structured data fields that are important, mm-hmm. You know, as well as we captured structured data on, let's say, software switches. You know, so for example, are people switching from Salesforce to HubSpot or vice versa? And so there's also a lot of structured data in our database, in addition to the unstructured data in the reviews. And I do think the power with AI is you take advantage of both. Mm. You know, and frankly, probably it's better at the unstructured data right. because as we all know, ChatGPT, I think, is still terrible at math. Right. You know, and so you kind of have to combine it with, you know, structured data. Mm-hmm. And likely, I think that, you know, you can't just run that through ChatGPT. Yeah, You, right. you kind of have to enhance it. And I think a lot of people, also curious to get your take on this, right? You may need more than one model, you know, where I think the ChatGPT is really good at the unstructured data and even pulling like the human sentiment and intent out of the conversation. But then it's also, at least from what I've seen today, it's bad at the structured data part of it. And yep. I think most business answers, and certainly we think software recommendations require both. You, know, you make sense of the unstructured data, let's say in the reviews, but you also leverage the structured data based on firmographics, technographics, like what's the rest of your tech stack. And so I think this combination of using the structured and the unstructured data. Um, and I think that's something, honestly, we're still trying to figure out, you know, because also if you ask chat GPT pricing questions and what's the right discount, right? once you talk about math, and also, I've missed something, right? I think it's still terrible at it. And at the end of the day, you need both, right? You need unstructured and structured data, probably for most complex business decisions, including buying software.
0: I think it's a really interesting point. So I think with structured data, there are two challenges, right? One is GPT does poorly, especially in the very math heavy kinds of structured data, but also there's a, there's, there is a much better way that already, already exists. Like even if GPT did, not, GPT did not exist, structured data lends itself to being like graphed well and categorized well and charted well, etc. That's just the nature of it. Um, But as you said, well, you don't want people living in, you know, we live in Power BI for structured data and then we can use this model for unstructured data. You want it all coming together into one cohesive recommendation. Uh, What we've seen, I think part of this is on the basis of a lot of improvements that are happening at OpenAI and, you know, these other models, too, is not mathematical structured data, but call it other sort of categorical data. You know, uh, this answer belongs to one of five categories. Um, It resembles traditional data structures that exist in code, right? Like you you have a data structure and this is this belongs to a struct of whatever, one of five possible values. And so I think what's happening is as these models are being trained to be really good at code and writing code and, you know, filling out code, like GitHub Copilot, etc., they also get decently good, not perfect, they still hallucinate, but they get decently good at structured data that's not as like, you know, it's not mathematical multiplication, but it is, you know, Oh, make sure you take in the fact that this is the one of the 10 categories it's in or this is one of the seven categories it's in and then use that in combination with the other data. So I think we're probably already there or close to it in terms of at least OpenAI. That's something that's what we're also more familiar with in terms of being able to handle less complex structured data.
1: Uh, so. And then I think what we're also doing, for example, we are then injecting our grids into it. Interesting. You know, and kind of training Monty to go look those up on the conversation. And obviously it doesn't, we still generate the grid elsewhere based on our structured data, but then we can pull it in. And yep. I do think there are many cool examples of that now, right? Where you can pull, pull graphs, pull structured data yep. into a chat GPT discussion. So, yep. so I think you're right. I think we're, uh, we're all progressing towards that and, kind of figuring out right how do you combine structured and unstructured data to give someone the best answer and i still think the conversation is going to be in the in the chat gpt and the the kind of unstructured back and forth but then yeah injecting the structured data into the conversation probably from another system when it's needed
0: and i mean i think every business if they're not they should be thinking about like this this idea of how do we take our data structured and unstructured and, and sort of deepen our value with uh, with our customers. Um, one question I have for you is, I know Monty's in 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 beta or alpha. What has been pleasantly surprising to you in terms of its reception, if if anything, from, from customers? And what has been more challenging in terms of its perception or reception or applicability or ease of use, et cetera, from what you've heard from other users?
1: Yeah, and probably the biggest, I mean, amazing experience probably most people have, like, like even I think within like a week, right? Like how easy it is to get it to be 90% good. And how quickly you can get something that's like a cool alpha or beta. You know, I think that's like, that was, I think a very pleasant surprise. And now I think, you know, it's probably proving more challenging. And I think we're seeing this even chat GPT open AI adoption. I think last time I looked like it reached a peak maybe in June and it's been declining monthly, not a lot, but a little bit, right. Cause I think that's probably also happening with Monty. There's an initial wow. And this is so close, but then a, it's not giving the perfect answer yet. You know, and a lot of business applications, like 90% good is not good enough. You know, if you're gonna make a critical business decision, including purchasing a large system, you need to be 100 percent right. And I think getting it from 90% to 100 percent that I think is proven to be a lot of work. And then the other thing is adoption, you know, because I think also this is true probably internet wide, right? Like, and even like Bing, right? They launched their open AI interface and, like, oh wow, it was gonna disrupt Google.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, and then reality is it hasn't happened yet, right? So I think internet user behavior. Mm-hmm. It's not shifting that quickly. And now we're actually trying to figure out, and we had the same thing with Monty where there was like a big spike at the beginning by curiosity. And now adoption's kind of flattened. Interesting. Versus traditional navigation of G2, you know, by category, by search. Um, and so now we're also figuring out, yeah, how do we weave it more into the workflows on G2? And right now we have it in our on-site chat, you know, but a lot of reality is a lot of people aren't going there right? Mm-hmm. They aren't using the AI yet. So we're trying to figure out how do we put it more into the workflow and get more adoption? Because I, I do think with the AI now, you probably get better answers, you get better recommendations. Yeah. But there's like a user adoption problem, I think, across the internet. Mm-hmm. you know. Where And I think even for Google, I imagine like the adoption of BARD versus traditional Google search. I don't know the numbers, but I bet it's still high 90s going to traditional Google search versus people going to BARD to find information.
0: It's interesting. I think um, the, the one... I I looked at data on this. The one company or the one website that's been dramatically affected negatively by GPT is Stack Overflow, right? Uh, And that suggests to me that because you're replacing human-written answers with so the 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 question-answer form is being replaced by another question-answer form, maybe with, you know, more information and a better understanding of the internet. on the one hand, to me, something like Monty, um, the positive, at least, obviously, I don't know your business as well, but uh, one of the positives is it's not a mission critical thing. You can use Monty to shortlist your list really? of three and then decide, you know, talk to the three vendors and decide you know who's giving you the best price or whatever else. Um, so it's not like, you know, the classic example of where you have to be 100 percent correct is like a self-driving car. You have to be 100 percent correct. You can't like run over a pedestrian. But here it's not like it's not as mission critical in terms of if you if you're ninety percent or ninety five percent I would I would expect that it's okay if it's just the first step in shortlisting your list of vendors. Right. But on the other hand, I wonder if there's just it's hard for human beings to move from a categorical sort of taxonomy based way of like making decisions to a question answer form. I, I don't know the answer to that, and you pro- you know. Probably one of the best companies that knows the answer or has the best data on that is you guys. On whether that's just a hard shift for people to make, maybe because, you know, you love the, I personally love seeing the, you know, the graph with like 55 different companies and just not having to do anything, just see them, you know? So I I wonder if that's part of it. I'm I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, no, I think you're right. And we are injecting those visuals, those grids now into the chat. Uh, But like I said, my current frustration is that we aren't getting more people buying on G2 to adopt it. Um, and like I said, I think it's an internet wide challenge, you know, but I think we're also going to try to, cause for example, we also have like compares of software products and right now it's like most internet sites. Like you check this one, check this one and you do side by side compare. It's like you see on like car sites or Amazon, right? People are very used to that paradigm. So they're kind of still shopping that way versus just, you know, going to the AI. And I think in the real world that we do both, right? But I think we're used to doing that more with humans. Yep. You know what I mean, like in traditional enterprise, it probably was like, "Hey, let me look at that Gartner quadrant, okay. and then let me hire Accenture, and then I have the conversations with the Accenture consultant, right?" While I'm kind of referencing the structured data, database, or book, and I think AI, you can integrate it, but maybe we're not used to that, you know? Like, and and I think it's also just a UI UX, probably on the internet in general, right? You know, like how do we we need to do a better job with our site? And I think the whole internet paradigm is going to change, right? Like web pages will probably look different, yeah. Like I think in our GT homepage, it's still like the Bing homepage where it's sort of like I think we've constructed it as like either there's a search path or there's the like AI bot path, and I don't think we've figured out yet how to match the two up well. Yeah,
0: it's one, one another one of the situations where you, know, you might be too early, and and in, and companies too early is, is is incorrect basically, or you know you you have to meet the market where it is for the most part, um, at least at least when to start with. But uh,
1: but I do think in five or ten years, right? Like I'm an AI bull, as are most of us, you know. And it always takes some time, and then sometimes in enterprise things, even like cloud adoption. Yeah, you because know, I remember, like I said, I remember Salesforce in 2000, and then like by 2010, it seemed like everyone in the valley, all startups, were on like cloud CRM. You know, but then I remember after my company Steelbrick was acquired by Salesforce in 2017, I was like Dreamforce, and I'd be talking to some enterprises, and they're like, "We're going to do something really crazy and innovative this year." And I'm like, "Great, what is it?" They're like, "We're going to try the cloud." <laughs> you know, and this is like 2017. No way. Yeah, so I think once you get outside the valley and outside of tech, right, you realize, but I do think, and like I said, cloud end-to-end is probably like a 30-year paradigm shift. I mean, i say from 2000, we're nowhere near done all the payloads being migrated to Azure and AWS now by large enterprise, right? It's probably yeah. 2000 to 2030, but we're like 95% cloud, you know, yeah. in spite of it clearly to me being the winning economic model um, and the winning computing and interface model. But I you know, I think AI, it will, I think most people are saying it'll happen faster, you know, even in the enterprise. Right? It's not gonna take 30 years. It's gonna take more than one though. We've already learned that, right? Like, yeah. but is it five? Is it 10? You know, it'll be interesting.
0: There will definitely be companies 20 years from now that would not have adopted some of the things people are adopting in the next year. Without question, probably still I mean, a lot, many, many of them. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about how you see G2's proprietary data advantage playing out over the next you know, 10 years. So we talked about reviews. We talked about some of the other proprietary data you're using. Are there plans to either, I don't know, directly monetize any of this data in some sort of aggregated form? I know lots of people would love to pay for the data you have, and you obviously have to be careful in terms of privacy and, you know, individual, you know, and not selling it to competitors, of course. Um so that's that's one question around directly monetizing it. But I think the more interesting question is around augmenting that data either by tracking new data or um, or or augmenting it with third-party data, etc exactly to build even more interesting models to feed Monty and other AI solutions you might be building. Yeah, and we do
1: have we already have a business we call G Two data Solutions. Got it. And it's a secondary business, but the early adopters of it have been investors. So nice. and initially it was like public market hedge funds, but also now VC's private equity investing in software. And I think G2 there, data is part of a broader shift. You know, it was probably started with, let's say, the CO2s of the world. You know, that started, obviously, as public market hedge funds, always very data intensive, right? trying to find sense. more data to give them a trading edge in public markets. Yep. But then a lot of those investors also came to private markets. And I think even yeah. a lot of the VCs now have data teams. And uh, people started coming to us and they're like, wow, you had this very unique data set on software, especially on private software companies who's trending. And not all of our data you can see on G2.com, things I mentioned like switch reasons or especially buyer traffic, buyer engagement, yep. who's really winning the market. Like a lot of that data you can't see. You can see reviews, you can scrape those for free. But so we have developed this data solution and we do have you know over 50 now, the leading software investors plus you know, some of the top consulting firms, including we're both McKinsey alums, BCG, Bain, they're all licensing our data now when they're advising software companies. So it is an interesting business um, that's emerging, you know, kind of as a, it's almost like our, a lot of marketplaces have this, right. It's kind of like selling the data exhaust and who knows, maybe there's even more value in it, right. Cause someday I've thought, Hmm, if you could really trade on it, maybe we should just become a hedge fund and monetize that way. Yeah. <laughs> Give away fun. all the utility of G2 for free. And if our data is really more predictive of software market shares or even stock trading. And I'm not saying it is yet, but yeah. yeah, it could be. So, but I do think the data, that is a real asset, right? Both to power our own AI, to power our recommendations for software buyers. And frankly, that's also, we have a G2 marketing solution. And yeah. the core of that is also data. As what we sell software marketers is data on who's shopping for what. They can be much more targeted in their marketing and sales outreach. And uh, so, yeah, I think, and we didn't really know, honestly, when we started how we we're going to make money. Like at the beginning, we just Yelp for business software. We're like, hey, this should be built. Because mm-hmm. we were frustrated by that status quo, we weren't quite sure how we were going to make money. And frankly, if it wasn't a second company we built, we probably couldn't have built it. You because know, the first couple of million was mainly our money from selling our first company, and plus some angel friends. And uh, it kind of took us a while to figure it out. But I think today it's clear to me: yes, we are a data company, right? Mm-hmm. And but also as a data company, I don't. Yes, it's a moat, and no, it's not a moat, right? Because if we also don't keep, because data's got to be fresh, you know. So if we and software is changing very fast, and you know, we do believe, and the data says it, we have far more software buyer traffic than any other software marketplace, software review site today. But but also like we never rest easy. You know, we keep trying to capture more reviews, get more data and also try to get data other ways so that we do have truly the best data set on software. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that's, you know, that's going to be the key because especially that's what software buyers want, right? They want database software buying decisions. Um, but then that's also what our other constituents want. Software sellers, they want data, software investors, software consultants. And I think everyone wants better data on in our industry and what I like about our business plan and what investors ultimately did also, like, I think it's the most important industry of our lifetime. And I've been lucky to be in it for 20 plus years. Yep. And uh, I think with AI, I also think the next 20 years are going to be even you know, more. Yeah, super exciting, right? Yeah. Now, even I just saw an interview with Mark Andreessen. I mentioned his software in the world, but he also, man, I think I just saw him on X yesterday. He's also saying, hey, what advice would you give young people? that still study computer science. You know, like I think it's still it's still bright times ahead for our industry. And if we can be the best data source on software, you know, we also think that's going to be a very important and valuable company. One
0: follow up question to that: How much of you know in- making your data fresh, keeping it fresh, augmenting it is? Uh, capturing new source of data. so you know you have worldwide web clicks, stuff that Sixth sense looks at and you know a lot of companies look at web traffic, etc. So I mean you guys look at that too. How much of it is tracking new things that you don't track today? Um, how much of it is partnerships with companies that already track it and buying their data or whatever it is or, or coming to an agreement where you have access to the data and that can feed your models and your your, your recommendations on what on what to purchase to buyers.
1: Yeah, and we are doing some of that for example like we enhance our data with and you know, we have a partnership with zoom info for example yep and you right. know for example they have good a lot of good firmographic data on software companies Yeah. You know, like how many employees do they have how much revenue are they generating so we do leverage we also look at like linkedin for number of employees mm-hmm, so sure. there's a lot of third-party data sets we look at to enhance our software ratings and recommendations because you know, also to the software buyer and our grid kind of has two dimension two dimensions to make software buying recommendations. One is customer satisfaction. That's obviously based on our unique user data set and review data set. But then the other dimension is market presence and really how well is this company doing in the market? Because I think also most software buyers, they want to buy from a company. At a minimum, if it's a startup, like, hey, are they going to make it? Right? There's some risk. And even better yet, can I buy from a company that's winning market share, winning market presence? Because odds are they're not only going to support me better, they're going to innovate better. So that's why we have this vertical access. And that's fed by a lot of third party data sets. You know, we also look at how well they're doing on Google, how well they're doing on X. And we, you know, we have about 20 third-party data sets we used to inform that and uh, but I think for any company I think the more important thing is a first party data you know because mashing up third-party data anyone can do at the end of the day
0: right you need to have yes there's no moat in that
1: yeah so we do also and I think that's one unique thing about g2 you know I think especially like the the buying engagement and traffic on g2.com only we have that you know the reviews we only we have that and then we are looking at other data sets like we've launched something called g2 track that software buyers can use to track benchmark their software stack their software spend and we also think that's interesting because it gives a software buyer the idea is almost like give you like a real-time benchmark of your whole software stack Mm -hmm. just by hooking up and typically works by api to your financial system and then we parse your general ledger and match it up to our master taxonomy to see what you're spending on software in each category you get kind of a free benchmark if you will and obviously in return we get to aggregate the data and that would give us get another data set so i think we are also looking away and it always has to be with like a value-added tool as a software buyer Right? but if we can also then build in some data give gets where we can capture additional data sets that allow us to make better recommendations to the buyers, but then also have better data for all the other you know, constituents in the software ecosystem, the sellers, the investors, the consultants. and yeah. we see that as win-win-win. So I think we're working kind of on both, you know, but but like having c- capturing more first party data that we can uniquely provide to the world mm-hmm. so we can make better recommendations, and then that you know also helps everyone that's relying on G two for data. Last question for you. Um, any plans to expand beyond software? Does that make sense at all? Um, yes, in the sense we want to expand to services that are adjacent to software. Yep. And I also remember, you know, building two CPQ companies, being at Salesforce, and you know they, they always talk about like a Salesforce economy. And I don't remember the exact stats, but you know Salesforce is now doing over thirty billion a year in revenue, and they publish this every year with a consultant. But I think that Salesforce ecosystem is about two hundred billion, and the other hundred seventy billion, yes, it's some ICs, part of it is mainly services. You know, there's all these consultants that will help you implement your Salesforce data in system, integrate it, cleanse your data, et cetera. So we're expanding that to services related to software because we also think that helps the software buyer.
0: Exactly. You make those premises together,
1: right? Yeah. And I know in like the Salesforce ecosystem, like Salesforce as a core CRM or Sales Cloud is so well known. A lot of people just buy that and because they're comfortable with it, right? Yep. But then figuring out, yeah, who's the best partner to implement it, you know, that can be a much trickier question. And that varies by region. It varies by industry, varies by company size. So we're we're keen to start recommending services so that you know people can get the most value from their software.
0: Fantastic, Gota. Thank you so much for joining me on the ITech Sales Podcast. This is a very interesting
1: conversation. Yeah, thank you, Rohan. Fun to be with you.